welcome to the FE Research Podcast, a podcast that aims to showcase the practitioner inquiry, scholarship and research being carried out within further education. Hello, welcome along to this episode. Um, my name is Sammy um, and I am a teaching and learning specialist at Texthelp. We do accessible technology, but that's not important. That's not why I'm here today. I am a former um, maths lecturer in large FE colleges group and advanced practitioner across the group as well um, and I was a co-author on some research that we're going to talk to you about today and I'm joined by the wonderful Dr Colin Forrest so if you want to introduce yourself Colin. Hi uh, Colin thanks uh, th sorry I'm Colin hi Sammy thanks thanks very much um, yeah I'm, I'm an honorary visiting research fellow at a small university in the north of England um, but as Sammy said that's not important the important thing is uh, I had the pleasure and privilege of working with the touch consulting team including Sammy on the uh, AP research thriving and surviving during times of Covid it was I've done an awful lot of research for myself and other people but this was one of the most wonderful pieces of research um, that I've ever been involved in it was so exciting uh, for me and I got so much out of it and I hope that between us we can convey some of that importance and exciting uh, aspects that emerge from the research Sammy do you want to add any more yeah, I think I think it is exciting. I think the way we're going to do it is quite exciting as well. So we're going to start with the outcomes to the end. So you yeah. actually don't need to listen past these first few minutes. <laughs> I think we'll give you everything you need, like a, a, a guided <laughs> highlight at the end. But we know what you're interested in is the how we did it and the the nuts and bolts of the research and where we went from and to. But um, we took an interesting approach to sharing our outcomes. So in our findings, we represented a lot of what we did with word clouds and as an early career researcher myself these were really pivotal to me to making sense of that qualitative data that there was an awful lot of and it was very rich and beautiful but it was also quite overwhelming so to be able to produce word clouds helped us really see how we'd answered the research questions um, um, and through our qualitative data. Um, so if you do check out the report on the ETF's website, um, page 20 under research question two, um, there is a hashtag um, word cloud and in word clouds, words that appear more often appear larger. Um, and just to read some of the largest words on this, it's like digital teaching. And I think that really helped us see how there had potentially been a shift in this emergency response digital support that advanced practitioners were providing to becoming a place where they had seen enjoyment and begun enjoying teaching digitally as well and supporting colleagues. Um, I will just say as well that this is what some might say is grassroots research and um, that's not to diminish this research but it's that it's from the people in the organisations. It's not being done to them, it was done with them, and it seeks to amplify the voices of those who are living um, and were working in COVID times and working as advanced practitioners. Um, but Colin, if you could just share a bit about the team that we put together. I'll talk a little bit about who we work with, uh, Sammy, because that affects, I think, how we shaped and uh, presented findings uh, apart from Sammy and myself the remarkable 
others that were involved was, of course, the uh, Dr. Lou Mycroft, um, who uh, is universal in this, this field of advanced practice, etc. And the project was led by Joss Kang of Touch Consulting. Uh, the leadership was superb. Um, it is something I, many of the skills of Joss I admired, how she can blend teams together. And the final team was Fraser Mycroft, a um, recently qualified from the University of Edinburgh um, anthropologist, so an expert, real expert in human behavior and ethnographic approaches. Um, he brought a lot to the, the project as well. So um, the findings, or as Lou would say, lines of flight, were had their origin in um, a mixed methods um, a survey of qualitative and quantitative uh, uh, resulting qualitative and quantitative data and the spotlight sort of enhanced focus groups that you were very instrumental in um, leading Sammy and the findings and the work was framed around three research questions. Now, a bit later on, we'll talk about the roles of the team and perhaps the importance of insider and outsider roles in, in a, the research context. And we were all involved with advanced practice. And as you said, Sammy, you were you were in that territory right in the dynamic itself. And we'd been involved with the previous rounds of um, AP Connect. And you and I, Sammy and some other co-evaluators were enrolled in the um, involved in the round where this research was was based um, in the co-evaluation with um, Dr. Christina Donovan and other colleagues. That that shared evaluation really came into this uh, research as well. So as we've hinted, the research was focused on how APs advanced practitioners were behaving during COVID, whether they were thriving or surviving. And part of Joss's and Lou's role was to have the dialogue with the Education and Training Foundation, who funded it, about how that might be shaped. But we did shape it around these three research questions. And you'll see that the questions are influenced by our experiences, our varied experiences in this AP territory. Um, the three questions. Do you want to say anything about the three questions, Sammy? Um, I think. I think I just wanted to pick up on the the survey part of it as well. In that, yeah, I think yeah. that that helped frame the direction we were going in as well. I think when you think survey and you're doing research forgive me but maybe sometimes i might lead to think oh that's going to give me some nice pretty graphs and that's going to help me display what i want to come across but actually what we found was that the survey sort of confirmed where we were heading um but it also showed us alternative paths of the routes that people were taking as well and that helped us really dive in in the spotlights to some further themes that we weren't quite expecting under the research questions as well yeah yeah so yeah that's really important isn't it sammy that interplay between the research tools and how they related to each other so the three questions that framed both the survey and the and the spotlights were um 
What's helping APs to thrive during the pandemic and support the practice of others? That was the first question. The second question was related to digital practice specifically. Um, how are APs shaping their own digital practice so they could support the digital practice of others? That was the second question. And the third question was a more overarching question about how are APs operating during the pandemic? A more generic question. Our research tools didn't focus on one particular research question or the other. I think, as, as Sammy said, it was an iterative research process. The survey went to 100, well, 130 responses we got, Sammy, didn't we? Um, on the SurveyMonkey uh, platform, um, it's a licensed uh, survey monkey version we use so that gave us access to more sophisticated um, survey design tools as well as analytical tools as well so um, I'll move on to the survey Sammy and then you can talk about the spotlights the survey was a mixture of quantitative and qualitative questions so we, we picked up quite a lot about the characteristics uh, in the quantitative sense of advanced practitioners, their levels of experience, um, their scale of their jobs, etc. And one of the most exciting quantitative uh, answers from the quantitative ones was, what are the labels that are attached to advanced practitioners? And I think there were 43 different ones. Um, APs, the 43 three different versions of APs, but bearing in mind there were 130 responses, you know, that variation is incredible. And there's something in the lexicon of those labels for me. Some implied that their roles were were owned by others. They might have a manager in their title, etc. Some uh, implied quite a degree of autonomy. So that was an interesting finding. You, you will find the research on the ETF website or on touch consulting um website and you'll be able to see those those different labels so the survey a mixture of qualitative and quantitative and we'll talk in a moment i think about the qualitative analysis and the survey was then shaped by the um the spotlights the focus groups that uh you and lou were very heavily involved with sammy yeah, I think to, to call them spotlights, I think we, we we played a long time around with what we were going to call the sessions. And I think that was an important part of the process as well. We knew we weren't interviewing advanced practitioners. We knew we weren't doing a focus group with advanced practitioners, but we didn't know what we were doing. We knew what we wanted. We wanted to shine a spotlight on the amazing work of advanced practitioners. And so by calling them that from the start that helped frame those discussions and the advanced practitioners coming into discussions and they came in as whole teams with managers and the hierarchies of their organizations and they came in as whole teams to share with us the brilliant things that they had been doing and we wanted to really understand and i say i hesitate to use the word understand because i, I think that's a really tricky word to to ever do but we wanted to gain as much knowledge as we could of what did that look like what did it look like to be an advanced practitioner in that organization and then what did that then look like in all these organizations across the sector across the country and how would that build and shape and so we consciously chose not just colleges 
Um, and I think when FE is mentioned, we sometimes have an, have an assumption that it is colleges, but FE is an all-encompassing term of skills groups, local education authorities, anything that is further education. And so we were very clear in the samples that we were taking and the spotlights we were doing represented the sector as much as we could. Um, and you reminded me of this when we were preparing for this, I'd forgotten, they were 90 minutes apiece. They were 90 minutes a time. Um, so they were quite lengthy discussions. And that's what I mean, we knew they weren't focus groups and we knew they weren't interviews, but we wanted to ask questions and we wanted to hear stories. Um, Dr. Lou Mycroft is a wonderful advocate of the thinking environment and the work of Nancy Klein. Um, if you've not researched that or learned anything about that, I do urge you to, to take a look at some of the things out there. But I think in doing it that way, where role, rank and ego are left at the door, everyone thinks as equals, it also helped us come into their space because we were coming into their team and we were able to get levels of insight that I think only colleagues may have previously heard. You may have offloaded to your colleague about something that happened, but you wouldn't publicly say that. And obviously we were external coming in. So we were very conscious of creating that culture where we could get what's and all everything that we could harness from the discussion and i think using the thinking environment to guide those discussions was a key part of how we got as much as out as we did of those, those spotlights yeah that's that's really interesting sammy and I, I think um listening to what you're talking about i think the positioning of us as individual members of the team as insiders and outsiders you used the uh, you know the idea of um being an outsider but i i saw your role as being very embedded you know you had this remarkable combination of um identities that were so important in this research you you were uh recently been an advanced practitioner so you knew that middle space and the the tensions that were experienced by ap's you had this world leading digital expertise that had uh you know got you lots of badges which emerged as being really important and you were also a co-evaluator in the um work done in the same um in the same phase as this and i, I want to reflect a little on this uh, insider outside a bit and just talk about how as a team we we brought different insider and outsider uh perspectives i mean uh you mentioned lou and clearly you know her work uh is is renowned in how the research was shaped and i i think that was that was really important the thinking environment but the way um lou challenges colleagues to give some permission to think unconventionally and to think the unthinkable and that these are attributes i think joss in her remarkable leadership role i think gave us permission to um undertake the research in a way that was in intuitive and uh, truthful and again Fraser's approach I think I would describe him as more of an outsider gave him the advantage of coming to the information that arose from the research with a fresh perspective and um, I wasn't involved I was involved a little in the design of the survey and I put the survey questions onto the the platform i wasn't involved at all in the spotlights um we'll talk in a minute how we analyzed the data 
but um, I was involved in a more summative um, way in terms of pulling all the information together. So I, again, was towards the periphery of the research space itself. And I was reflecting a little earlier, Sammy, how that gave us a tremendous um, range of advantages and it also allowed us to address, I think, some of the potential disadvantages being so close to the research. So inside this black box that was the research, I think what was a strength was uh, how familiar some of the research team were with the context. So we didn't have to spend time that if we were all outsiders actually understanding this context and the richness of what the role, role is. And that's probably over a lifetime of research, nobody will ever really do an understanding of the AP's role justice. It is so complex, it is so rich, and what a wonderful piece of research uh, it was to be involved in. Um, so that's a huge advantage. And I think another advantage was being able to access uh, the advanced practitioners. You know, they were working with members of the team already. We um, had ready access, I think, to that. And there was, uh, as, as I've described earlier, there was extensive buy-in from the research. And another strength, I think, of the approach was, was the relationships between the researchers uh, and the research participants, you know, they were strong. There was a really um, trust, I think, cemented those relationships. And I think we'll return to the values-based nature of this research. And I think it gives the findings, the line of lines of flight, um, some authenticity, I think, um, speaking to the concepts of validity. There were potential risks though, I think, um, having, you know, people so close to the environment being practiced, you know, um, you, you potentially find in some instances a convergence, you know, this polite consensus around, you know, what, what the research findings are and perhaps a lack of challenge. But as I say, Fraser did the data analysis and I was perhaps on the periphery of this um, research. So th there's there's something there then about the participant behaviour and how they would behave with researchers that were completely new to them. And I think there are there are balances there. Um, I think perhaps outsiders traditionally in research would be more sceptical about things that we took for granted in the research. You know, the importance of the thinking environment, the importance of collaboration for APs. And we have tested those so many times. So I am certain those are authentic. But, you know, outsiders may start at square one with that. I think we should return to some of these ideas. I mean, when we talk about the ethical approaches we um, used and how we came to that, how important ethics was in this research, but perhaps it's a good time to talk more about the spotlights and how that data was collected. Yeah, so we undertook um, five spotlights and we um, we did 90 minutes with each team in a thinking environment style, but we did go with questions and the same questions were asked in all the spotlights. Um, 
and it was very interesting because actually as i said at the beginning like the service of informed some of those questions that went into the spotlight that we wanted to know more about and um, in one of the questions we referred to the um kubler ross grief cycle of the stages of grief and we asked in the spotlights how does this does this image relate to you um and in every single spotlight, every single participant said, yes, it does. When we were put into lockdown and I was an advanced practitioner, there were all these stages of high emotive situations that happened. And now we're at a more manageable stage of, you know, the pressures on my time as an advanced practitioner and my upskill in digital. I say all except one. And there's always that thing in research, isn't it? When you, you plow along and everything's going great and everyone is confirming everything and then you go to one spotlight and the group turn around and go, no, that image doesn't speak to us. It means nothing to us. But we learned so much from that in that you can't make assumptions and you're there to test. You're there to test the questions that you're putting to, to the research and you're thinking, well, hang on a minute, if that doesn't, then why doesn't it? And then it made us rethink, well, actually, what were people telling us in the other spotlights? And how does that link to what we have in the survey? And what we found was a real richness in the data. And I think that's true of FE as a whole in that the, there will never be a one size fits all. The 40 plus job titles that you call an advanced practitioner is evidence of that. But I think when we're talking about people, and this is where Fraser's brilliance came in, in that when we're talking about people, you've got to be prepared to be even more surprised than that and adapt and change your research journey wherever that takes you. Yeah, thanks. And um, Fraser's expertise in researching people and how they behave was really important, wasn't it, in the um, data analysis. And uh, Fraser looked at the qualitative data from both the the spotlights they, they were recorded weren't they um sammy they were recorded and i say the same line um <laughs> in every single spotlight and it just made fraser's day every time he got that recording he'd sit waiting for me to say this i didn't know i'd said it and it was only after the fifth one did he tell me that i said it in every single one but yeah that, that's the that's the beauty of it being recorded is that you can have it back and and yeah. someone else can be in the room with you and i think fraser was uh, very good at analysing it. There's no doubt about that. But I felt that he him, he immersed himself in the room with us, even though he wasn't there live and was doing it asynchronously. I felt that he had been in that room with us when I looked at his analysis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I wasn't involved at all, and I, I um, in in that, and I got a great deal out of the uh, analysis. I mean, Fraser's uh, experience was invaluable wasn't it in here and fraser used a tool called uh deduce uh, i've used other coding tools but he took that coding tools from the open-ended data that arised uh, sorry the open-ended qualitative information the data that arose from the surveys and also the spotlight data and he he categorized it using the, the coding software and um, you can see the codes in in the document itself but the high level codes there won't be too many surprises here in the codes that emerge um and these are, are emerge from the ddo software uh, community was one the importance of digital was another the idea of change emerged as well and then the vehicles for that change um fraser coded these as programs that was the probably where the code was finessed the most into smaller 
categories. The idea of growth in all senses, um, the skills that the APs were fostering and learning during the pandemic, that was a, a code. And the final code was the importance of the of the workplace. Um, the, these these data uh, generated by, and I'm using data in the qualitative and quantitative sense, of course, became the Bowerbirds' shiny blue things, uh, didn't they, Sammy? And you may start to get a sense that this was uh, an approach based on grounded theory, um, the, the Glazer and Strauss model. And I think it probably was um, because we were using a very inductive approach we were going, as I hope you've spotted by now, we're going from the specific to the general. And I suppose that's where my role came in, trying to generalize theories from this um, fantastic data. So um, I think, Sammy, it probably was theory building after we'd collected the data. And in my experience, this can be reductionist. Um, I really hope we haven't been reductionist, but you will see some things um, as we talk about the lines of flight that are almost self-fulfilling. You know, there, there are things that, uh, bearing in mind what Sammy and I have said about the research team, you would be gobsmacked if they weren't there in the, the lines of flight. Yet, I think we found out some new things. I think we found out things that haven't... Um, uh, been discovered before and as I've said I was so proud to work with these team members and I do think it is probably an example of grounded theory in, in the in its truest sense and we have built new theories um it wasn't a, a though without a lot of deliberation Sammy around the ethics and uh, how to behave legitimately in gathering this data have you any thoughts, Sammy, on ethics? I think ethics, this is a very early stage of my research journey. So um, I was terrified of ethics, really terrified. And Joss was brilliant at connecting us to the right people to ask the right questions to. And so I could sit in meetings, not having a great deal of knowledge of what was happening, if I'm honest, but waiting for that bit of ethics that I wanted answering for myself to then be answered and explored and suggestions to be to be held and that was the research colleges group they were kind of fundamental in helping us get to that point weren't they Colin? Yeah 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 I think so I mean um it could have been very messy about ethics I mean we we were all involved with different we all had multiple hats we were all involved with different institutions and potentially would have we would have had to go through the ethics approval from the various institutions where we were developed and as you say Sammy the advice and uh, the sense checking I think of our approach with the peers from the research college group was invaluable the work was commissioned um, by the education and training foundation and I think it was them that probably held the ethical um, space Therefore, us, you know, they needed to be reassured that what we were doing was was ethical. Um, but I think we we navigated that um, territory uh, truthfully and honestly. It, um, and I, I might just unpack that a little. I don't know who the spotlights were. I don't know who the 
um, research participants were. We we could have found out who was answering the survey from the um, uh, is it the ISP, Sammy? Uh, you know, we did have that data, but that would have been flipping hard work. So the notion of confidentiality and anonymity was really important. The research, I think, Sammy, was confidential. I, I was doing the pulling together. I don't know who who the uh, spotlights were or, or the individuals. It probably wasn't anonymous, though, because some of the research team did know those um, those settings, of course. And as you say, we wanted to get a breadth of, of representation, but it was definitely non-identifiable. And that's really important, I think, when we come to the uh, lines of flight, you know, where the research takes us. We were really, really careful um, to make sure uh, that we couldn't individual uh, identify individuals or organisations. Um, so it was anonymous, but I think we need to be careful about confusing confidentiality and uh, anonymity. It wasn't entirely confidential because the so some of us knew, of course, what the spotlights um, spotlights were. Um, and it, I, we spoke earlier about the inside and outsider dynamic. And I think for me, this throws up an ethical uh, dimension. I don't think it's a... I don't think it's a um, uh, continuum, but I, I do a lot of work with teachers that do, doing research, and there's something about their ethical position. There's a lot in common, I think, that teachers have with researchers. The curiosity, the um, burning desire to find out something new, and there's something about ethics of care and ethics of challenge. And I think ethics of challenge is something more associated with outsider researchers. They might be relentless about challenging the research participants to find out what the truth. Like teachers want to stretch the learners and students they're working with, you know, uh, as far as possible. Yet both researchers and, um, and teachers care about the people they're working with. And we were really, really concerned about this ethics of caring you know in the theoretical sense the name noddings um understanding of ethics of care um and that was something that we discussed at great length wasn't it and i think a really important part of that ethics of care was to make sure that we were giving back to the people that we were working with the participants and personally i believe this is such an important ethical consideration in research like this. We we have an obligation not to waste res, uh, research participants' time. They often give uh, the time up voluntarily. I know in some researches there are uh, research contexts, there are um, payments involved, and the spotlights, did, there was a small amount of payment to pay for the time of those research participants there. But an important consideration is not to waste people's time. So therefore, I felt there was an ethical obligation on us to use as much of the data, the information we collected as possible. Um, 
whether we've been successful on that, you would, uh, those of you listening would need to read the report. Um, but that is really important. And the importance of giving back, saying thank you for the research. This is what your, your um, work looks like. So we don't talk too much about ethics um, in the report. But as you say, Sammy, um, Joss led that dialogue with the research colleges group and we didn't have a uh, ethical approval um, approval framework like we're used to working with in other settings but that doesn't mean we weren't giving the ethical approach um, the utmost priority um does that make sense sammy yeah definitely and i think just to give context on that time wise i think in the run-up to the project we probably spent more time on the ethics yeah. than we did on the survey the survey felt quite a speedy thing that we took that we did but the ethics took weeks and weeks and weeks of conscious conversations um of you know consciously thinking about how does this look how does this feel and uh, interesting what you say about giving back and not wasting people's time it, a recurring theme in the spotlights as well was um what was nice was gratitude from the participants in the spotlights for having the time to have these discussions and to reflect as a team as well because i think we all very hurriedly returned to some semblance of normal um after covid times and actually it was quite nice for the teams to sit and to reflect together and to think no we did this we did this and we did it really well and do you remember when this happened and i think they took a lot from the questions that we put to them as well that made them think of all the wonderful things and perhaps some not so wonderful things that happened during that time as well and just on the um anonymity and confidentiality um we were aware of some of the people that we did the spotlights with but i i hadn't met or spoken to the majority of them before but also you didn't have access to those spotlights no. recordings no. you had access to Fraser's coded data and mm. um, when you were compiling the report at the end and i think that just gave us an extra level of um uh, as much anonymity as we could across the team but certainly confidentiality as you were pulling it together as well yeah 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 so, thanks sammy so if we move on to the findings the lines of flight Sammy, that you know what all of this uh, started to tell us, and I, I had the wonderful job of uh, pulling all this information together, trying to synthesise it. And wow, wow, what a what a wonderful job that was. Um, th this sounds bitter and twisted, Sammy, but uh, to start with, I felt resentful because the data was so rich. I couldn't do my usual lazy thing of fitting the data neatly into each of the three research questions. It was so detailed that I didn't have that shortcut of saying, oh, this data here fits with this, this research question. And it, it was extremely messy. But I think probably what we've learned through this research, particularly Sammy, is that research that isn't messy and difficult isn't worthwhile. Um, and the sense making was um, a, a really, really um, rich and challenging uh, aspect of, of the work for me. But I'm going to be a bit reductionist and just quickly refer back to the research uh, questions um, before becoming a bit expansive uh, again, Sammy. Um, the research question one and two, they were to do with 
with practice. Um, and we found um, really um, the research question one, that revealed how important that was about, sorry, the research question one was about how were advanced practitioners engaging in formal and informal activities within their organization and, and teams. We, we found there how important external, the question was about organizational, how important this external space was during times of, of, of COVID, how valuable that was. The organizational context became very important and we'll talk about that in a moment. There was benign effects, neutral effects, positive effects and negative effects there. The research question too was about the speed at which APs changed and to support others and the digital the digital aspect was really important and this is where your expertise was being reflected back i think sammy um, in particular in the in the, the digital sense and we can talk about that uh, more later but of course those digital engagements they were much more complicated much more sophisticated than just learning to use teams or Google or, or whatever, very refined. And, and um, what was interesting there particularly was that the APs were using digital platforms to talk to each other in these organizational free spaces, but they were all also learning a great deal of how to use digital platforms for their own pedagogy, for their own teaching practice. So there was that dualism there for me. The third um, research question was more around an overview of whether APs were thriving or surviving. And of course, as you would expect from a question like that, the answers are going to be yes and no and maybe. And um, you'll find in the report some detail under that research question. But if we come out perhaps a bit more uh, panoramic, really, we did come up with a new model uh sammy that um bearing in mind this was running a few months after the model that we had generated during the uh, co-evaluation um christina and other co-evaluators so we created this and i think you coined the the christmas tree idea and putting the lights on so we had this this model of how uh, um, advanced practitioners were working already in our minds and we, we we were proposing that there were three key interlinking areas that provided some insights to whether APs were thriving or surviving um the first area um I'm saying the first just because it's the first that comes to me the bottom the hierarchy here was this idea of community how important communities were to advanced practitioners for a number of reasons, but both for professional purposes, but also for social purposes. And I'm using social in a very, very broad um, sense because mental health was something that was um, very readily addressed by these virtual uh, communities, I think. And people could share ideas and concerns in these safe spaces amongst peers that emerged as very very important the second area was the significance of course of 
organizational cultures and some advanced practitioners the organizational culture evolved very quickly was very highly supportive the leadership uh, empowered advanced practitioners to transit into a more virtual environment in other settings and this is at the other end of the con continuum um ap's found themselves more isolated um during the pandemic they were um felt more highly pressured uh, under more stress etc um so the culture became perhaps more polarized the importance of culture became more polarized perhaps during the the pandemic and the third key area in our model um was we, we called it the importance of virtual architecture and the the word architecture for me is very important here because sammy lou joss you deliberately curated that space it was an architecture rather than something that happened by serendipity it was an inclusive space it was um one that where the participants i could see from the data felt a, a lot of ownership over and overall uh, it, it was safe there was nobody listening in apart from the, the peers and they could uh share their thoughts in an uh, uninhibited way so the deliberately curated virtual spaces that were pan-organizational in, in in nature was a really important part of this model so three aspects um the communities organizational culture and this vertical our architecture we presented these as a, as a venn diagram didn't we so in in the center of course that is where the thriving ap's inhabited but it's it's a wobbly model the the three elements of course were in interplay to different degrees one element may have dominated one individuals etc so the relationship between those three spaces uh, we call them dualities the dialogues the tensions between those three spaces were really important um we might move on to the theoretical aspects that emerge from this but have i done that model any justice at all sammy it was brilliant it was great yeah i love a model um i think <laughs> i think for me because i am very early in my research journey for me i i couldn't i couldn't make sense of things in the co-evaluation report and this research as well uh, until sort of the models emerged and then I was like oh it all ties together nicely now and I can see where we've come from with this and I think they're a really useful way to sort of represent your lines of flight as you emerge from a piece of research and a Venn diagram fits the bill beautifully but it it does sort of then show you where the AP sits and like you said earlier the AP is like such a multi-varied role but so important internally and externally as well and i think us having a model that represents that does ap's justice i think as well sure sure so um if we embrace the spirit of grounded theory we could we could look at where the model comes 
from perhaps and how we started to uh, think about how other theoretical perspectives might come into play. So unlike other research we may be involved with, we didn't turn to the literature initially. We didn't come uh, up with a theoretical framework at the start and then use that to batter our participants with and ask them questions that we owned around what we have found out from the literature. We did the grounded approach, Fraser's uh, data analysis, and then a number of theoretical perspectives um, sort of occur, occur to us. And some of these won't be surprises, um, but some I would like to say we do make unique contributions, I think, from this this research. The models of coaching and mentoring that's at the very heart of um, the AP role, that, of course, the theories around that. And many of the participants in the research were also participating in the ETF's uh, mentoring programme. And that's, of course, based on the on-site mentoring model um, articulated most commonly from uh, the Brighton University team. But there's a lot of theory around models of coaching and mentoring. Another really important um, aspect here was um, Christina's own work, Christina Donovan's own work on valued informed practice and particularly trust that um, we, were, we were fresh to this, weren't we, Sammy, through the co-evaluation. Um, but that really became uh, important. And the findings of the co-evaluation talked about support, leadership, trust etc so the theories around values informed practice was a second aspect i think of course you mentioned nancy klein um and lou's uh, contemporary understanding of that is uh, really really rich it's not easy it's it's challenging but the significance of thinking environment principles emerged to me as a really important theoretical aspect and the inclusive nature where individuals have that uh, space to articulate their thinking. Um, then of course, again, this isn't a surprise, but the characteristics of communities of practice. Um, one of the things that frustrates me is how sometimes in the literature, the original concepts of communities of practice is corrupted and things that are perhaps more better described as networks are described as communities of practice. So I, I was anxious to revisit the original concepts of communities of practice. And there was a really strong sense of purpose, I think, that is one of the original uh, characteristics. And I think also legitimate peripheral participation was in play, where the APs, the participants, uh, in the research um, had different levels of experience and worked in different contexts. Some were subject specific, some were across organisations. But the community aspect of the research strikes me as there was still uh, legitimate peripheral participation going on. And clearly situated learning was happening in the sense that, that the situation and this is something I think that's been true of all iterations of the AP programme, that situated learning, 
the notion of our, our advanced practitioners I'm sorry, advanced practice as a thing, as a craft, as an art or a science in itself, I think is a really important feature of uh, situated learning. But where I think this research started to depart from the theoretical aspect is how it exposed pan-organisational. This original work is always situated in the craft, actually, wasn't it? Um, in its instance, you know, in a particular specialism i think we we've taken it into this pan organizational aspect just a couple of other quick aspects uh, the theory uh, the literature around boundary spanning how important boundary spanning and i'm using boundary spanning not boundary crossing Bound, uh, ap's were working in lots of different territories contested um and combative as well as collaborative so they needed to appreciate appreciate the spaces that others and that was really important uh, in this thriving or surviving dynamic i wish i'd had time to explore this next aspect in more detail the um breakwell's work on threatened identities in some of the more and they were distressing pieces of data to read and um encounter really were that some APs became that their roles that were already pretty difficult having to deal with um, multiple agendas etc became even more threatened in 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 the pandemic so I think that's an important area that we um, could re uh, equ uh, usefully reflect on um, APs as critical theorists, I think, emerge very strongly for me. They're empowered, um, almost in a Marxist sense, I think, and perhaps linked to that, the, the importance of, of reflective practice. So there's uh, eight or ten areas there, Sammy, that we, we could begin to search the literature for theories that um, support it. Uh, and uh, in supported our, our research data and our our findings and that um as all research does you always want to uh, propose where to go next um but I, I don't know how those theoretical perspectives chime with um your your thinking around the research you know as from the digital perspective sammy i think it's really key i think um the, the digital architecture, which you came up with, um, was your phrase, it's a wonderful one. Um, I think the virtual architecture of it is that we have to be pan-organisational now. Um, the role of the AP has always been this internal, external. And I think in the co-evaluation report that we did, it was quite a key theme that that is sometimes mm -hmm. where some of the tensions arise of the role of the AP as well. And so it's interesting that you return to the true moon communities of practice, which by their very nature will often be pan-organisational because that's how you're going to get the best people to build that community with. And so I think that where this goes next for me is how do organisations support APs in that um endeavor to embed themselves and entrench themselves in external communities without causing the tensions that we saw in the co-evaluation report that sometimes may arise for APs as well. I think that is a really key aspect of this. 
Yeah, yeah, thank you. And so you've hinted at where our curiosity, there's lots of itches we want to scratch, aren't there? <laughs> and um, this, this is a, such a difficult thing, I find, with research. Uh, it never provides, you know, the answers. It always proposes more answers than you um, you you think you've uh, addressed. But I think that is one aspect we would be interested in finding out more as things perhaps start to return to some sort of normality where do these pan-organizational communities that we saw were so important where do they feature now and if they are important i think who or where will these deliberately curated virtual spaces um exist who will be doing that ownership we are certain from the research that the curation is really important um, that deliberate practice, creating those spaces for people to meet, it isn't something that just happens. It was so important. If it's going to be inclusive in particular, um, you've hinted a moment ago at the tensions, that those aren't going to be solved <coughs> um, overnight. But actually surfacing them and recognising them and the work, again, that Christina was leading with some other colleagues around practice, this inquiry circles was a device to expose those dualities and tensions to actually get them on the table and begin to address them. We've talked a lot about organisational cultures and that of course uh, needs addressing post-Covid. I suppose you see it at the political, national political level in this working from home uh, debate and how there aren't enough as a DFE colleagues are directed to return to the office, how there aren't enough desks, uh, et cetera. So the importance of organisational cultures in this dynamic, unsettled landscape. And I suppose, Sammy, the most important thing is, um, as things return to normal, I don't know if you agree, but this values-led practice and, and particularly uh, trust, you know, again, very, very topical, uh, at a national and international level. Um, this research wouldn't have been possible without the participation, participants trusting us, without us as a research team in trusting each other. And again, hopefully that the participants have trusted us to reflect the truth or a version of, a, of the truth, their truth, their um, very similitude back to them and in that sense i hope the research has been empowering it was so rewarding to do from my perspective sammy and i'm so grateful for the opportunity to work with you and the others and to read the ap's stories yeah it, it, i think we've we've threaded it throughout but i think uh, hoping that the listeners can take away that it was a dream team to work on everybody had their own area um that they brought to the table but with a unique insight into the sector like colin said because we weren't fresh to the sector we had we had the insight of where things had been and where they were heading but we can't i don't think we can't stress enough the importance of the strong leadership of the research program by joss in that no matter what the direction it was taking as we were mapping it out and i'll echo back to the ethics you know weeks and weeks and weeks of trying to come to where we were trying to get to with the ethics joss just did not 
lose sight for one moment of the purpose of the piece of what she was trying to learn from the sector and amplify and that was the key part is that we were doing everything we could and hope we're hoping that we did it to amplify as much brilliance as there is in the sector as well yeah and um part of that amplification sammy is we've been lucky enough to have the peer uh, review of the research being recognised positively, so we have an opportunity to share these findings at a research conference in um, in July, and um, again that might help us with our uh, restlessness around where to go next. Yeah, absolutely, um, and I think I think for me, I, just as an early researcher, it was so wonderful to see how all the scary things that can put you off doing research can be overcome it just takes a bit of time and sometimes just a bit of critical thinking and ultimately that critical friend and if you don't have that critical friend in the research team you're going to need to go pan-organizational and find one and <laughs> bring one in as well and that was a key aspect of this as well for me and I think that in terms of the research journey is how it ended up being such a great piece in that Joss brought an absolute brilliant team together okay um we're gonna wrap this episode up now um but thank you very much for listening um and if you do want to learn more you can reach out to the touch consulting team um they are on twitter touchcons fe um and we'll be more than happy to answer any questions via there as well but thank you very much mm -hmm.